0: I really just want to tell two stories today. That sounds like it'll be brief, that's not true, but it is essentially two stories. One story is about our church and one story is the story of Paul uh, that we read some parts of just now. And um, I've been reluctant to tell the story that it's about our church and our church building process. I've been fearful that perhaps this will come across too much as trying to sway you guys in a particular direction. But I also felt like it really fit today's sermon, and that I thought it was important that you at least knew what God had been doing in my heart in this process. And so in the last three and a half months, I've been agonizing and praying about this church building thing, and I wanted to share about how I've seen God's providence in this process, in my own personal ups and downs as I've wrestled with it. And I will recognize it is hard to read God's providence sometimes, but I think at the same time we need to wrestle with God to see what he might be doing amidst us and in us. So, a story about me and the church building. So, about one year ago, I went to visit First Baptist Church. We were just, the session that talked about, hey, let's just see if there are other places better to rent. And so I had heard First Baptist uh, may be willing to rent out. So I went to check it out, and my first thought was like, wow, this is a really great worship space for us. But I found out then that um, they were likely going to sell their building to the university uh, sometime in the coming year, and that their membership had dwindled to the point where that was likely to happen. And so given the instability of that, and I was trying to figure out, well, maybe we could rent from the university, it just seemed crazy, and so I was like, forget it. It's not going to work out to rent from First, First Baptist or the, the university, and when you get squatters rights in the rec center as a church, you don't leave it unless you have a sure thing, because churches have been asking us, hey, are you guys going to be leaving anytime soon? It's like, no! This is ours. Rec center's ours. So this summer, I found out from Tom wooltice, who's the director of Geneva, Geneva Campus Ministry, that the university couldn't buy the First Baptist building because of the state spending freeze, the university spending freeze and so the First Baptist was releasing the building to the public to see who would want to buy it. And Tom came to me and said, hey, uh, let's buy this together. Geneva Campus Ministry and One Ancient Hope, let's buy it together. And the the asking price, I don't know if you had heard it, was $1.5 million. And when he said that to me, my first response was like, $1.5 million. Like, there's no way we can do that. That's just crazy amount of money. And I didn't even know whether I wanted to, to... Honestly, like, I was like, that's so much money. Is it even worth talking about with the elders that just is crazy. But then, unbeknownst to me, Tom uh, talks with one of the elders, and so I'm like, well, okay, like, one of the elders, he's already talked with, I guess we have to talk about it. Like, in God's providence, this conversation's happened, so let me talk about it with uh, the elders. And still in my mind, I was feeling very doubtful, because it's like, okay, like, how much are they going to come down? Like, 20%? to $1.2 million, like, that's still a lot of money. Maybe we can do it with two organizations. And then not long after that, though, Geneva decided it's just not the right thing for them. And so now it's like, okay, it's just just us. And we need to figure out whether we want to do it or not. And I was really encouraged in that time, not by the price tag, but by the elders, because the elders were unanimously, enthusiastically wanting to see if this was something we could do, whether it was the right building for us, whether it was something we could afford. And I really appreciated their enthusiasm, their vision, their fearlessness, that just didn't seem like um, it didn't seem to me only that there was any fear in their hearts. I felt some fear of again of this this price tag of one point five million dollars again, you know, as we looked at this building, it seemed like the perfect size for us. It was the perfect location for us. I mean, honestly, any, any bigger building, and it would be way too expensive, a, a great location, but a slightly different location, and then it could be more appealing to developers. And it just seemed like, okay, this is a really kind of perfect building for us. Yes, it has some drawbacks, but it still is, is really suited for who we are. And then for it to happen, and I don't know, this feels a little bit like reading into God's providence, is happening on the 10th year anniversary of our church. It felt like such a perfect time in the life of our church to make this kind of transition. And this was amusing to me. First Baptist, you know, they have a council that kind of makes these decisions, and they unintentionally included me in a thread of their emails as they discussing things to one another. I think it, I know this is going to sound bad, but I think it was just someone who didn't know how to use email and just was like including me in it when they were just trying to talk to one another and now got all this inside scoop that was like, okay, all right. That stuff I just found out. That makes me really encouraged. This could happen. And as we went through that process of looking into the building, God just brought the right people at the right time. I mean, this was, at least for me, something I'd never, ever done. I don't know anything about praising a building downtown. I don't know what number to put on a building. I don't know anything about you know, how to evaluate the, the condition of the building. But God just, like, God brought, uh, like, Shiloh had a friend whose dad was a local commercial real estate developer. And I was like, all right, I don't really know this guy that well, but I've talked to him at, you know, basketball games, baseball games every now and then. So I just called him up and said, hey, could you help me with this? And he was like, yeah, sure, you know, and... and um, there was He connected me to uh, a general contractor, of a big construction company in Iowa, and this guy walked through with me as well to kind of just kind of an informal evaluation of the building. And he was like, oh, actually, I already walked through this building once because our, our company looked at it to see whether we wanted to buy it. And I was like, oh, great, that's awesome. You already know something about this building. And so, again, all these things, right, these little things and, and even... Um, you know, I think most of you know from the, the meeting that Chris Jones helped us with, uh, kind of the legal paperwork, and I think even his knowledge was again just the right place at the right time um, to really help us move forward in this. And Inside Out Reentry is this nonprofit that's in the building, and really First Baptist, what they care about is the future of Inside Out Reentry, and it just felt like like God just gave us favor in the eyes of Inside Out Reentry. The executive director just liked us and wanted to see us in the building. And I remember talking with her one time, kind of in the process, and she was just like, yeah, I just put out to the universe that I hope a church buys this building. And you know, we really like you guys. You know, there have been different churches that have walked through, but we really like you guys. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And there just seemed like there were no other developers or churches or organizations that were serious contenders for this building. And, and even before we submitted a proposal, there was a very generous donor who agreed to, to give 25000 a year for five years. And so I, we didn't even ask this person. We hadn't even gotten to the stage of asking people for money. And this person said, hey, we're willing to do this. You know, and I think for the, the session, it was like, okay, all right, maybe we can do this. Like, even though we're not sure how much we're going to offer First Baptist, and then we went through that process of saying, okay, what we think we can do, and the advice we got was give your best offer, and we thought the best we can do is 800000 and that's what we offered, and that's what First Baptist accepted, and we were delighted. They were, again, they were, they just seemed very for us, they accepted our price, they essentially accepted most of our terms, and we're in the stage now that the inspections and the inspections as we've shared briefly, have gone relatively well and we continue to do our due diligence. Now I say all that to say like that's a lot of little things. A lot of doors that God opened along the way. A lot of people that God brought along the way that if God hadn't opened these little doors, if God hadn't brought along these particular people it would have been very difficult to continue moving forward in a venture that was new for almost all of us on the session. I don't know whether God wants us to buy this building. God is not written on a wall somewhere that I can say, hey guys, look at this wall. God says, buy the building. And we are still in the midst of that decision to decide whether to move forward with that. And we must do so prayerfully. We must do so seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We must do so seeking the wisdom of God. But I still, I wanted you to know that I've seen the hand of God work in this process through the ups and downs of my own internal fears of, is this something that we can do? And I've been encouraged by God's providence in that process, God's hand in that process. And that really is what the main point of this passage is today. The main point of today's passage is, is really that the encouraging nature of God's plan in uncertain times. And that in, in those uncertain times that God still yet seeks to fulfill his purposes. And even more specifically, that God's providence persistently moves the gospel message forward and calls us to take heart and join in his work. God's providence persistently moves the gospel message forward. forward. So let's take heart and join in Jesus' work. And the reality is, We get discouraged. We get discouraged as Christians. No matter, you know, what church we're a part of, no matter what our circumstances are, and we can look at our society and feel like there's just, like, this hostility towards Christians, towards Christian views. We can be discouraged by our own circumstances. We can be discouraged by how things are going at our own particular churches. And we can, it can lead us to this discouragement of like, oh, you know, I just, I can't do this. I can't be a part of God's work here in this city But I think as we look at Paul's story of traveling to Rome, we will see again just the hand of God at work, God's providence in fulfilling his purposes in moving the gospel message forward. I'm gonna go through chapter seven here and half of chapter eight fast. Imagine like I'm on a podcast and you've put me on one point five speed. Like this is what I'm gonna do, but there was like so many little details that I thought were so encouraging that I didn't want to miss. Like these were the little things that God was doing all throughout Paul's journey to Rome, and I encourage you to read the passage for yourself. It's really intriguing to me that that Luke, who wrote Acts, spent put so much detail about this journey in the sea. If you read it, it's like I'm, it's almost like why do I need to know like which which island you went to and what side of the island you went through and what you threw out of the ship in order to survive the storm. Like, there's so much detail. And I I learned about sailing. Like, I had to look up sailing terms to understand this passage. But let's dive in, okay? So, in God's providence at the beginning of chapter 27, we see that that they're heading to Italy from... um, the place they were at. And there was Paul and other prisoners. They were under the oversight of the centurion Julius, the Roman centurion Julius. And it says from the beginning that Julius showed kindness to Paul, allowing him to visit his friends at a particular city in Sidon. And the the text says, so they might provide for Paul's needs. And then the sailing continues. And I'm not going to say all the different parts they stopped in, The sailing continues, but their journey is quickly slowed. The journey is slowed because of the conditions. In verse 9, I encourage you to actually open your Bible if you have it, because I'm going to hit verses pretty quickly. Verse 9 says this, Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, "Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous, and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. The reason why it gives the Day of Atonement is trying to tell you the time of the year it was. And to let you know that the time of the year was beginning to be a dangerous time to be taking a voyage in the sea. There was a great danger to what they called winter sailing. Winter sailing conditions, there's scant daylight, there's long nights, dense cloud cover, poor visibility, and the double problems of raging winds, showers, and snows. And so, the centurion says in verse 11, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot, the captain, and of the owner of the ship, and the majority decided that they should move on, they should sail on. Verse 14, before very long, a wind of hurricane force, okay, we've seen quite a few hurricanes recently in our country, A wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. And then we're told about, again, I don't know anything about sailing, but four methods that they went about to try to protect the ship and the people and to stay on course. They sailed on the lee side of the island. Does anyone know what that means? I had to learn this, the lee side of the island. They They had to sail on the side of the island that blocked the majority of the wind, so that it was calmer for them. They frapped the ship, which means they ran cables along the bottom of the hull to, to strengthen the ship's hull. They brought the, the, ding, the lifeboat or the dinghy out from the water and put it on the boat because they didn't want the waves to crash the dinghy against the boat. And then they had to, at some point, just start throwing tackle and cargo overboard to lighten the, the ship to keep it from sinking. In verse 20, we hear this, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, I mean, try to imagine being in a ship in this condition, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, and I think the point is that they were so anxious they felt like eating was just too much trouble, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. Now, he's not saying, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have sailed. He's trying to gain credibility in their eyes so that they would hear what he was about to say. Verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I faith in God that it will happen just as He has told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, in God's providence here, the ship, the sailors, the soldiers, the prisoners are experiencing great danger. Paul had warned them not to sail in these wintry conditions and yet they didn't listen and he was overruled for whatever the reason was. And the passage here says that they were in such dire conditions that it says we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And the language that Luke uses is this salvation kind of language. They had given up hope for salvation. And so what we see is that God wanted this to be a physical salvation, being delivered from the storm that illustrates like a real-life parable of the spiritual salvation that Christ offers. And we're going to see this even more clearly as we keep going through this passage. God speaks to Paul through an angel of the Lord to, to, to say that God's purpose was for Paul to stand before Caesar, to share the gospel there in Rome, and that all who travel with him would be saved, would be spared from losing their life in the storm even though they had completely lost hope. And it was this supernatural word from the Lord to Paul that gave them hope in the midst of this extreme danger, these extreme circumstances, this extreme hopelessness that they had felt. So for a moment, we we need to just think, like, what would that be like? How would you feel if you were in these conditions, if you were the men of this ship? And how have you Times felt like that in your life when you can resonate with these words we have lost all hope of being saved and in those times when you have that kind of hopelessness we all need God's voice or a voice from a trusted friend to say to us there's hope even if you don't feel any hope right now And if you are someone who's struggling with that kind of hopelessness right now, I hope that you would reach out to a trusted friend and and hope that they would bring words of hope in the midst of your hopelessness. Pray for God to bring a sense of hope to you in the midst of your hopelessness. If If you're not struggling with that kind of hopelessness, keep your eyes open to the people around you who are struggling with a sense of hope in that way. To be the voice of God in their life. To hear them out. To validate what they're going through. To point them to the hope that God gives. To point them to the hope they have in Christ and the promises that God has for them. It's a delicate thing to be able to validate the hopelessness someone feels given their circumstances and yet at the same time to seek to point them to the hope that we have in Christ. I ask you as we continue in this passage to consider what hopelessness have you struggled with? What hope can you offer those around you who are struggling with hopelessness? Will we continue in our story, verse 27? On the 14th night... It's been a long time they've been in this storm. We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. Verse 29. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the the sailors, okay, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow, then from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. It's pretty dramatic, right? They just let their lifeboat go, but they are now beginning to put their hope in the word of God that was delivered through Paul. Paul believed God clearly, right, in this passage, that they would all be saved, and he offers this hope to people in the midst of hopelessness. But they still believe they needed the sailors. I don't know whether it was to sail the ship or whether it was they believed the promise of God involved everyone staying on board and all to be saved. The sailors clearly have not trusted in God's word to them through Paul. They are trying to save themselves, only in abandoning everyone else by taking the lifeboats for themselves. And Paul realizes this and warns the centurion. And the centurion chooses to trust the word of God that was given, the promise of God that was given through Paul. And so cuts the ropes to the lifeboats and lets the lifeboats drift away, trusting not in lifeboats, but in the word of God and the promise of God to them. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Paul, again, in the midst of hopelessness is being a voice of hope, a voice of encouragement. His hope rests firmly on God's purposes and the promise that God had given to him to save the ship, not save the ship, save the people on the ship. And the specific language that is used is this, he, he, he really using salvation term, terminology. He says, it's translated, you need it to survive, food that is, but it is literally translated, this is for your salvation, which seems a bit strong. He's talking about telling them to eat a little something. They haven't eaten many days. And he says, this is for your salvation. And that his reassurance comes in this Old Testament proverb that Jesus echoes. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. And then Paul goes on. Verse 35. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. This should sound familiar to us, right? Right? They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. The author of Acts, Luke, intentionally includes this meal they have before they reach shore and uses language to remind us of communion. The Last Supper... And may, may, it was normal practice, even in Jewish tradition, to thank God, to say a grace, essentially. But here, Luke uses language so reminiscent of Christ's words in communion. And again, he's reaffirming this physical deliverance from the storm is just a real-life parable, the spiritual salvation that you need from Christ. And it even goes on to say that they ate as much as they wanted and they had enough left over to cast it into the sea. Christ here is brings salvation, but also life to the full. Christ is the one who saves and also the one who satiates. We are saved and satiated by our Savior. But we see it end this way. Finally, after... More fearful and dangerous times in the stormy sea, the ship runs aground. In verse 42, it says this. The soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. I think the idea here is the soldiers understand that they are responsible for these prisoners and for the prisoners to essentially go scot-free because of this situation, these dire circumstances, that they are still going to be held accountable and their lives may be at stake if they had to report that they lost all these prisoners. Verse 43, But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept the soldiers from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on, on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. And then it's curious. So there, verse uh, chapter 8 Chapter 28, verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. So again, we just see God's hand, God's providence throughout this process. The centurion, Julius, continues to show favor to Paul, right? And show kindness to Paul. Normally, it would be normal practice to just kill these, these prisoners, But Julius wanted to save Paul, and because he wanted to save Paul, he hatches a plan that essentially enables all of the prisoners to be set free, to be saved, and not killed, just as God had promised through Paul, through the angel, the Lord who spoke to Paul. God, in saving Paul for his purposes, saves all these other prisoners as well, and saves the lives of everyone on that ship. God's purposes to move the gospel message forward will not be thwarted. It will not be thwarted by centurions, by soldiers, by sailors, or by a storm. And it's so strange, again, that these things are included. But when they're washed up on the island of Malta, in God's providence, can these islanders show them kindness to these shipwrecked survivors? And it tells of Paul being bitten by a viper as they started a fire for their warmth. And after Paul was bit, the islanders expected him to die from this poisonous bite. And they interpreted it as Paul. It's kind of like karma. Oh, this man must be a murderer. He got bitten by this snake. He's going to die. And yet, again, in, Paul, in God's providence, Paul does not die. And the islanders react in amazement. And they start calling him a god. They consider him a god because he did not die from this snake bite. And the story even continues where the, a, 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 major, a chief official of the island, Publius, Publius, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, he welcomes them and shows them generosity. And in, in, again, in that providence of God showing favor to Paul through Publius, God then heals Publius' father and other islanders who are brought to Paul. And so God's providential favor is going both directions now. In verse 10, it says, They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. And so this section wraps up with verse 14. And so we came to Rome. Finally, their journey ends. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. You should not miss that the last word of this section, again, is the word of God's providence of the favor that was shown to Paul in these circumstances and to hear of the encouragement to Paul's heart amidst God's work throughout this process. That his journey ended with seeing these brothers and sisters in Christ. recognizes God's providence throughout this process of journeying through the sea through the storm all these little things that happened along the way that enabled him to survive enabled God's purposes to be fulfilled that he would arrive at Rome to proclaim the gospel to Caesar and again nothing could thwart God's plan here no person no storm no natural power could do that And there were certainly times in that process where circumstances seemed extremely grim. And there were times when circumstances seemed a little bit more encouraging, when they came across people who showed them favor. And yet God worked through all of that for his purposes and for the good of the church, the early church of that time. And these experiences that we just heard talked about enables Paul to say in his letter, to the Romans chapter 8 28 and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose that's not just some abstract thing that Paul pulled out of some theology book this was something he pulled out of his experiences of following God but Paul is not a fatalist we need to hear this we hear God's Ordaining hand, his plan, yet he's not, Paul does not see himself as a fatalist. He does not believe that his fate is determined and none of his actions or decisions matter anymore. Paul lives as though his choices, his actions matter, that his words matter, that God works through him to achieve his purposes. Paul recognizes that God is the playwright and director of this play and that Paul is an actor in this play and yet he's an actor with great leeway. He's an actor who could improvise in the moment. He's an actor whose choices affect the play and yet he's acting out at the same time the playwright's direction. Paul recognizes that as an actor in God's play, his Choices, actions matter and shape the story. The Westminster Confession is a a confession that our denomination holds to and it gives a definition in the shorter catechism of providence. What are God's works of providence? Question 35. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And as with every part of the confession, there are scripture proofs for everything, but a couple of verses, Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Matthew 10, 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The confession explains, yes, God is the first cause of all things, and yet he uses secondary causes to achieve his purposes. And that's to say that God God's plan works out is not just about the results, but it's about the means as well. Or to say even more simply, God uses us to achieve His purposes. We are an important part of His plan. So to be a Christian who believes in God's plan and His providence is not to be a mute and inactive an actor in His play, but to be a vocal and fully engaged actor in God's play, trusting His direction and yet using all of the faculties that God has given us to be a part of God's purposes in this world, trusting that God will bring the story to an end for his glory through our redemption, trusting because God is the God who is good and all-powerful that the hero will overcome the obstacle, that good will win, that the story will have a happy ending through faith in Christ. He is making all things new. Providence is a theme really throughout the whole book of Acts. And yet it ends emphasizing that more clearly than ever as it sketches out in great detail the journey that Paul is going on. And as we consider that for ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, do we lose heart as we seek to participate in the gospel message going forward? Do we get discouraged, again, by, by our lack of opportunities, by our, our own lack of maturity or the hostility that we think exists towards Christians? But God, through his providence, uses the weak to speak to the strong, to shame the strong, and to show the power of God and his gospel message. We are simply called to faith, and faithfulness. We're simply called to faith and faithfulness. We've watched too many movies, and we are Americans, and that means that we love grand gestures. Grand gestures of romance, grand gestures of heroism. But that's really not what Scripture calls us to. Scripture calls us to faithfulness in the mundane, in the everyday relationships in the everyday activities, to have faith that if we engage with God and the work of God, that He will use the most mundane things and multiply them for His purposes, that if we are faithful to Him and trust in Him, that He will bring the fruit to bear and continue to move the gospel message forward. We see the gospel so clearly in this passage. Paul is the saving presence for the rest of the people on the ship. Paul is the mediator of salvation for the rest of the people on the ship. It is because of his presence there that everyone else is saved. And so just as Paul is the, the mediator for their salvation, we are pointed immediately. And again, that language that's so reminiscent of communion, we are pointed to Christ as our mediator. We may not live in an actual storm. We're not sailing across any seas where we're about to drown. But we live in the brokenness of this world. We live in, un- in the uncertainty of this world. We live in the sin of this world. And because of that, we can be discouraged. We can lose hope. We can be broken by our own sin. And this passage reminds us Christ is our mediator. Christ is the one who saves us when we feel hopeless to save ourselves. We may always be tempted, like the sailors, to save ourselves in some ways, to find that lifeboat. As long as it's not trusting in Jesus, let me find that lifeboat where I can save myself. But Christ says, trust in me. I am your Savior. I am the one who will satiate all of your desires. I am the fulfillment of all of your desires. Look to me. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the bridge to our eternity with God. And as we rest and rely upon that truth, that's what gives us the energy to go out into this world, to love as Christ has loved, to love our neighbors sacrificially, to prioritize loving God and our neighbors over the other things of this world. It is God's plan through Christ that saves us. It is Christ's presence in us that saves us. It is Christ's solidarity with us that saves us. We are called to trust in Him for our salvation alone and then to be sent out into this world to offer that same hope to a world in need. Let's pray.